Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford, President and CISO at Alan Alford Consulting. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. Alan Alford here, President and CISO of Alan Alford Consulting, and I am, of course, your host, and I decided to fly solo today rather than have a guest on the show. It's been a while since I've gotten to hog the mic, and it's my show, so I'm going to do it, and no one can stop me. I promise to try my best to make it worth your while, however, and uh, as per typical with my solo shows, I posted on LinkedIn for some questions and topic ideas. I wanted to make sure that I'm talking about things y'all care about rather than just blathering into the mic. So I got a few really good suggestions back, and I thought I'd do a show around those questions and uh, topic ideas. So without further ado, let us dive in. Sasan Atari, CISO at FIGS, which I don't know if that's pronounced FIGS or not, but it's all caps FIGS. He asked this. He says, in light of the recent SEC decision to prosecute a CISO, how to protect yourself while doing what you think is right for your employer or customer? This one, I've got a pretty hard line stance on. I'm going to be brutally honest here. Um, Do the right thing. Go with your gut. Period. End of discussion. If you are being pressured to do the wrong thing, it's important to try to get that pressure in writing um, just so you can document that the the ask was even on the table or the pressure was there. If anything goes south later and someone tries to blame you, you can prove that, you know, hey, I'm, I'm not the one pushing for this. But the bottom line is do the right thing. If you're being asked to do it, don't give in. If you know for a fact it's the wrong thing to do, don't do it. And if that means you have to leave the organization, so be it. And again, having that evidentiary trail in writing as best as possible uh, helps protect your exit, um, helps, you know, solve any issues that may come up or arise down the road. And then there's maybe the more gray area things where it's not necessarily that you're doing something wrong, but you're doing something risky, something that could backfire on you. Again, get it in writing. Um, just basic CYA physics here. If, if somebody's setting you up to be the scapegoat, recognize that that's what's happening and either duck out or, um, you know, get it in writing to make sure you're not the scapegoat, right? You can always insist on getting things in writing. If folks aren't willing to put things in writing, then that sort of tells you that you're probably back to scenario one of, uh, it's the wrong thing to do in the first place if no one else is willing to sign up for it. So it's really, to me, that simple. Do the right thing. Larry Rosen, VCSO at Presidio, asked, uh, how does one get value from a cybersecurity assessment? Now, I've got a hot take on this one, or at least a a unique take. Maybe it's not so hot. Maybe it's lukewarm, but it's unique, I think. Uh, And that is that cybersecurity assessments, as they are traditionally conducted today, are largely useless. Uh, We're talking about the big four comes in, interviews your business, grills people, asks a lot of questions, runs around and does surveys. Maybe they even analyze your tech stack and look at some configs and do all the various things they do to poke into nooks and crannies. And they ultimately produce a boilerplate report that has your maturity score. And that maturity score is probably going to be like CMMI. Maybe it's COBIT, maybe it's ITIL. But but you get this PDF document with a bunch of verbiage and a bunch of charts and graphs. Most of it's cookie cutter for them. Uh, they're just fine-tuning the results and the graphs to reflect your situation. And you get this score. What you don't get from them is uh, access to the methodology. What you don't get from them is an understanding of the methodology. What you don't get from them is necessarily even repeatability because the big four tend to send a different team almost every time they come out. You know, the, the, the one you really liked quits, moves up, whatever happens. You get a different team the next time because generally you're only doing these things every one or two years, right? So 
that's why I say largely have no value. Now, where I think these things do have value is oftentimes you end up reporting to an executive leadership team or a CEO or a board or whomever who insists upon it's got to be um, big four. It's got to have that big four stamp on it. I'm not going to accept an assessment from some random little schmo that came through, you know, or, or a self-assessment or whatever it might be. Okay, fine. Big four stamp it is. If you have to include the big four in your process, here's what I recommend doing. Step one, start with your known frameworks. You probably have regulatory drivers. Maybe it's uh, NYDFS. Maybe it's FFIC CAT. Maybe it's HIPAA. Maybe it's PCI. SOC, you know, well, not SOC 2. Any of those regulatory ones. Then you have your next layer, which is ones that are maybe customer or demand-driven, SOC 2, ISO 27001. Then you have your internal ones you might choose to do, like CSF or CISV8. Whatever. You've got a mishmash of frameworks. The next logical thing to do when you're up against a lot of frameworks is to put together the master superset framework that sort of defines the various controls you should have uh, in, in accordance with those frameworks. So you'll find points of overlap and you'll find points of uh, dissent maybe even. You have to get all this into one spreadsheet and sort of document this. So in other words, you now know if I implement control X, I am influencing SOC 2 in the following way with these you know, controls or this control. Um, I'm affecting this control. I'm answering this one for PCI, for HIPAA, you know, blah, blah, blah. So start with a master framework. You may have to create this yourself. You can cheat. You can go over to Compliance Forge SCF, the secure, uh, the secure controls framework. Um, that's Tom Cornelius and his gang over there. Uh, that's a great resource. I think SCF is a, is a really good uh, source of already mapped, um, you know, cross-references for most of the popular frameworks. You can get SCF from them. You can do it yourself, whatever. Now you've got your cross-mapped framework. Great. Now you have your master list of all the things you truly have to do. You then take your maturity model, and it doesn't matter which one you pick as long as you apply it consistently both internally to a given audit and audit over audit, right? Consistency is both X and Y axis there. Pick your COBIT, your ITIL, your CMMI, it doesn't matter. Um, you'll have things like zero equals doesn't exist at all, five equals optimized and integrated, you know, three equals implemented, but, you know, bare bones, these kinds of things. The main thing is take that and apply that now on literally a per controls basis. A per controls basis. Once you are done with your master spreadsheet, once you have done a maturity score per control, you can average that maturity score and voila, you know what your maturity score is for the organization. Now you have a consistent methodology that's granular and detailed, that's facts-based, facts-driven, that you can definitely point to and say, no, 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 this was based on reality. Look at these details. We interviewed these people. We looked at these configs. We have this tool deployed so far for 70% of the estate, or it's deployed, but it's not automated and integrated and API hooked into other tools yet, or whatever the state might be. You can speak to it in detail. You can speak to its maturity score as an answer to that framework. Now, this is true for all frameworks, like even the ones that are supposed to be yes, no answers, you now have a gradient of zero to five. This methodology can be done manually. This methodology can also be done uh, by buying uh, TrustMap, my former alma mater. I was CISO and CTO over there. Note that I have no financial stake in that company any longer. Uh, I'm just recommending them because I know it's a, it's a solid product to help do this exact thing. So that's it. You're done now. You are conducting self-assessments that are both framework compliance and maturity all in one effort. You know they're being driven by the actual demands you have on your organization. And you know that you are generating a realistic and defensible maturity score. Do this on the regular, whatever this looks like, monthly, quarterly, whatever. 
as frequently as you can possibly do it. Be updating. And an ideal universe, at least quarterly, so you can report upstairs the changes in your maturity score and your targets and your visions and your goals. You know, you'll, you'll identify where your biggest gaps are. And, and that ties into another conversation we'll get into in a moment. But that's basically the gist of it. Then what you do is when you bring in your big four every year or every two years or how often, however, however often they come in, you have them start with the materials you have. You hand them what you have, where you're at, what your last self-score was, and let them run around and basically serve as a validator of that. So in other words, they're no longer producing an arbitrary random number that you're not really quite sure where it came from. You're making sure they see the evidences you've taken the time to already gather, and they're basically validating your numbers. They may, they may do an interview and tweak and say, oh, your guy said 70% of the estate. It's actually 60. We're going to lower that score. Okay, fine. You can expect some minor adjustments here and there. But for the most part, they should be ratifying the work you've already done. You're also paying them less money because there's less running around because all the evidence has been pre-gathered and handed to them, right? So it's, it's a win-win. You get your third-party stamp of approval from a big four entity, but it aligns with your own internally driven maturity score and mission. And there you have it. Um, now, as to the other bit, I mentioned there's a, a couple of more things. Um, there's two other things to me that need to be in that report upstairs. It can't be just maturity. You have to know your known risks that are measured in whatever method you choose. And, and I've had you know plenty of guests on the show that will tell you 5 by 5 is an absolute crappy methodology, that you have to go with FAIR or Bayesian Math or Monte Carlo Sims, that it's, it's about loss exceedance curves, not about hard numbers and these kinds of things. Pick whatever method you want. If it's five by five, at least apply it consistently and internally, you know, across the board to everything and, 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 and cycle over cycle consistently. Same thing, consistency on the X and Y axis. But measure your risks. Be able to articulate which ones are the biggest and scariest risks and make sure that you've got a punch down plan for those risks. At the same time, you've got a punch up plan for upscaling your maturity cycle over cycle. And then your last one is business objective alignment, right? That one's super simple. Just to be able to say to the business, uh, you guys wanted to expand into Europe. Well, that means we need GDPR. Here's the cybersecurity strategy and plan for GDPR. There's an example of cybersecurity absolutely facilitating the business. You guys want to reduce sales cycles. Well, here's us uh, getting a proactive SOC 2 and agreeing to meet with uh, potential customers and, you know, blah, blah, blah. All the ways you can align um, with the business mission, facilitate, um, I ideally completely satisfy, but at most, you know, at least um, enable or assist whatever the business mission is. And that should be what you do cycle over cycle with, with your upstairs reporting, be that to ELT, the CEO, the board, whatever. Uh, maturity targets and changes, risk targets and changes, business objective targets and changes. Like those are the three things you should be measuring yourself by, in, in my humble opinion. And, and you now know where I think Big Four fits into that and where those standard cyber assessments fit into that. All right, Christoph Foulon. Uh, I've been on his show. He's been on my show. He's currently Senior Manager of Cybersecurity and Technology uh, Risk Oversight over at Capital One's Card Cyber Division. He asked, how should one pick a cybersecurity company or solution? Um, this, this question, to me, ties in perfectly to the answer from the previous question. You have to know what risks you're addressing. You have to know what maturity goals you're, you're enabling and, and, and where your uplift on maturity is. And you have to know what your business objective alignment is. Once you know those things, you know what type of technology you need. And oftentimes that alone is the decision factor right there because there's not a whole bunch of competitive landscape. You've discovered one vendor who's the only vendor who's doing the thing you need done. Great, go buy that vendor. If it turns out there is a competitive landscape, um, fall back to your CISO peers. 
ask everybody. Um, I'll come up with an example here. Drada, Vanta, SecureFrame, right? Like, jump on the CISO Slack. Who's used Vanta? Who's used Drada? Who's used SecureFrame? You know, uh, CrowdStrike, Carbon Black, Silence, same thing. Just check around with all your peers and see, you know, what the recommendations are. You may find out very quickly that there's a negative aspect or a negative rep with one particular vendor or another. Great. Now you know to weed those out. Uh, maybe it's not that simple. Maybe you get mixed reviews. Okay, fine. POC and and on we go with the usual process from there. So, Christoph, that's my answer to that question. Jim McConnell, uh, who is a fellow at Verizon, former guest of the show as well, asked, how do you disconnect from security, clients, and FOMO? Uh, it's kind of three disconnections there, three separate questions, really. How do you disconnect from security? Um, I, I, I don't. Uh, I've got a cybersecurity podcast. I am a fractional CISO for my wife's company. I've got the day job. I do all the cybersecurity consulting. I've got clients. I'm pretty much cyber 24-7, clients 24-7. The only way I can disconnect is if I just sort of declare that I'm going to be working from home, quote-unquote, from other locations. Every now and again, I'll I'll take a mini pseudo vacation, like, uh, you know, I'll visit the in-laws or I'll go out to the country or whatever it might be. And as long as I got an internet connection, I can, you know, I can sort of pare back on my work each day and try to only put in an hour or two, enjoy the rest of the time off. Uh, That's about the best I can do. Uh, How do I disconnect from FOMO? Um, I I don't know. Um, That's a really good question because I'm so busy these days, I miss out on a lot of really good things going on in the cybersecurity community. I used to be much more engaged socially in cybersecurity than I am now. I'm just nose to the grindstone these days, barely have enough time to get my show out the door. Uh, So fear of missing out is a big thing for me. That's what FOMO stands for, for those who don't know. Uh, I don't know how I disconnect from the FOMO. Um, I think right now it it kind of rains and I just have to let it rain. Um, So, Jim, that's my answer to that question. Let's pause right there real quick for a word from our sponsor. Do you want to make cloud security risks a no-brainer and remove friction between your security and dev teams? Well, Daz takes the pain out of the cloud remediation process using automation and intelligence to discover, reduce, and fix security issues. Lightning fast. Daz prioritizes alerts, shrinks backlog to actionable root causes, and improves mean time to remediation from weeks to hours. And best of all, keeps your developers focused on what they love doing most, coding. Visit daz.io slash demo and see for yourself. That's D-A-Z-Z dot I-O slash demo. Peter Schawacher, CEO at Nearshore Cyber down in uh, Oaxaca, Mexico. Um, He is perhaps the most esoteric of my previous guests. Uh, He suggested that I talk about how to start and sustain a cyber podcast. Why and why not? Um, Okay, let's get into that. Uh, Why do a cyber podcast? Um, For selfish reasons, you will learn so much about our industry, about tooling, about methodologies. You will get vendors who sponsor that educate you on whole new capabilities in, 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 the, in the landscape that you didn't even know were there. You will have guests who have these amazing insights and clever new takes and unique twists on things you were taking for granted or just hadn't really thought deeply about. Um, you, will, you will gain a deeper philosophical underlying layer there to your entire cybersecurity game. Some of my guests come in and talk about, like Kelly Shortridge, behavioral economics, Peter Schaubacher himself. We talked about so many esoteric subjects outside of cybersecurity. But these things can influence and serve as really strong philosophical underpinnings. It's important for me, you know, I got a liberal arts undergrad degree along with my master's in InfoSec. And that, that liberal arts foundation for me is super vital 
Because liberal arts teaches you how to think about thinking. It teaches you how to question everything you do. It teaches you to dig into and find the underpinnings and the underlying assumptions and the foundations upon which um, your, your activities and thinking might exist. And that sort of questioning, that sort of going into the deeper depths to me is so vital and so necessary because we have so many operating assumptions that we don't even think about, that if we don't shine a mirror at them, if we don't take them apart, if we don't dissect them and put them on the table and acknowledge their existence in the first place, we're, we're doing ourselves a disservice. So I think, um, I think those are all the benefits of having a cyber podcast. Clearly, it doesn't hurt, um, you know, my reputation in the industry or whatever. I mean, get your voice out there. Get a bunch of smart guests on your show. Uh, you get credit for being smart, even if you're just asking questions and your guests are actually the ones being smart. It's a winning strategy, folks. Um, why not do a cybersecurity podcast? Because it is a grind. I have done a weekly show for four years now. For four years, I have recorded a show every week or, or maybe batched up three in one week so I could take a mini vacation, this kind of thing. But, but a weekly show has gone out the door. Uh, I started on Defense in Depth with David Spark. He and I co-founded that show. Then I broke out and started Cyber Ranch. It's been two and a half years since I started Cyber Ranch. So it's actually four and a half years total now. Um, it's, it's hard. It's difficult. Folks, there's some weeks that I just want to give up. Uh, and just think to myself, you know, is it really worth all this effort? Um, I get thousands and thousands of listens a month. I get lots of uh, traction on LinkedIn when I post my topics and post my shows. And it's the feedback from you guys, honestly, that keeps me going. Uh, it's really that simple. I would have quit by now probably 100 times over if it wasn't for the fact that so many people tell me they find value in it. And so many people tell me uh, it's, it's served as great insight for them. So many people tell me I, I get the best guests with the best uh, perspectives, and, and that's really what I'm striving to do here. Uh, my fundamental philosophy on how to be a successful cybersecurity podcaster is rotate guests through. Don't make it about yourself. Make it about the guests as often as you can. Just try not to ask stupid questions and try to encourage the guests to shine where they shine, right? One of the first things that I do with my show when I'm talking to a new guest, and we always say, what topic do we want to talk about? My response is always, what has you jazzed? What has you angry? What has you worried? What has some kind of strong reaction for you that you've really spent some time thinking about it and grinding on it and, and getting to a position of uh, being sort of authoritative on that topic, right? Like that's the whole trick is I want something that the guest is good at to be what we talk about. And then I just have to listen to them a little bit ahead of time get an understanding of where they're coming from, uh, put together some questions that are hopefully not stupid, and then voila, we're off to the races and have a solid show. Uh, so for me, that's the formula. Um, it's definitely rewarding. It's definitely worth doing. But I tell you, four, four and a half years into it, boy, it, it sometimes is a grind too. So just, you know, engage with caution if you're going to get into this lifestyle. It is a commitment. All right, Heather Noggle, who has also been on the show before. She's an owner, uh, the owner over at Codastack. Um, she asked after my origin story, which I hinted at in my show with Peter Schaubacher. We kind of talked about that, but I didn't go into in depth. Um, not sure everybody really wants to hear my origin story. Uh, this feels like it's awfully just Alan on Alan kind of stuff, but, but what the heck, for those of you who are curious, I'll try to briefly summarize. Grew up somewhere on the border of lower middle class and middle class. Um, mom was a school teacher. Dad was actually a mainframe uh, systems, I don't think they called them systems administrators back then, system analyst, I think they were called. And he actually focused on and specialized in, believe it or not, security. So I'm second generation uh, cybersecurity. Um, so he was a, you know, hands-on keyboard guy, wasn't management. Uh, mom was a school teacher. So, you know, 
money coming in for sure, but certainly not wealthy either. And and I'll tell you this, when the first computer entered our home, uh, it was the original IBM PC with the twin 360K floppy drives. Uh, I was allowed grudgingly access to it. Um, and I had friends who grew up in, in wealthier homes who uh, had access to their own computers and very quickly formed a network of friends in middle school. Um, we had Apple IIEs. We had uh, TRS-80s, um, you know, uh, Commodore 64s, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody seemed to have something different. And early on, I went to a garage sale and found uh, some books from an old guy that was retiring. And he had uh, books on basic programs, literally like printed out on paper, the actual line-by-line basic program to do certain things. Uh, on the PDP-8 and PDP-11, uh, micros, minis, whatever those were called back in the day. Um, and I would take these basic programs, many of them were video games, um, and I would attempt to make them run on my PC. And, of course, PC Basic was different from PDP Basic. And I would have to learn things and tweak things and figure things out and, and get it to work eventually. And then we would take it down the street to my friend's house and do the exact same exercise all over again on the Apple IIe and then on and on to the TI-99 and the TRS-80 and the Commodore 64 and blah, blah, blah. Porting of code going on, cross-platform awareness, multi-OS awareness, and all of it kind of driven by this desire to have some cool games to play. So, you know, that that was it. Um, got into the games and things. By high school, I switched gears. I had discovered girls and uh, computers weren't anywhere near as interesting as girls in high school. Uh, flash forward to college, and I'm off to my liberal arts degree, and lo and behold, nobody in the department knows anything about computers, but the department is getting computer-enabled, and I quickly became one of the go-to guys in the department to just help with computer stuff. Um, I discovered at that same time that flipping burgers didn't pay well, but uh, knowing computers and running down the street to the Alpha Graphics print shop and running their Macs for them, well, that did pay much better. And so I got my first IT job while I was still in college in the late 80s, um, and it kind of took off from there. I paid my way through my undergraduate degree. Again, you know, not, not, not rich, but not poor, you know, somewhere in the middle, but, but on my own for school. Um, didn't own a car, didn't have the money for a car, but I had a mountain bike and a, and a scholarship and uh, computer jobs to fill the, the delta that the scholarship didn't cover. And I went to uh, a variety of undergraduate institutions, uh, usually driven by saving more money. I kind of went through all that in college. So I, I paid my way through school working various IT jobs and eventually sort of fell out of undergraduate after years and years and years of studying all these esoteric subjects and whatever liberal arts things interested me, uh, I just kind of walked away from it because I had a lucrative career. At that time, my attitude towards education was I'm here to learn not vocational things, which I can teach myself on the job. I don't, I don't need to get a computer science degree to know how to write programs. I'd already been doing that since middle school, uh, how to configure and administer machines. That's what I was doing for a living. I was learning on the fly. So I, I, I spent my education years just literally on what, what, what in the old days would have been called a classical education, minus the Greek and Latin. I didn't feel like diving into those languages, but humanities, philosophy, psychology, sociology, urban studies, media, communications, English lit, um, political science, like all that kind of stuff. I was just constantly learning to learn. I took a symbolic logic class one time because that just interested me. So that was me in undergrad. Uh, eventually the career takes off and I walked away from the degree. I made it all the way to uh, director, I think, before I realized like I should really go back and finish that undergrad degree because I, I doubt I've got a lot more traction in my career without it. 
So I went back as a grown up, um, closed out with a generic liberal arts degree, but I managed to tell them, you know, I want to focus on leadership. And so all of my specialized classes where you got to pick your topic were all centered around leadership, my research, my my capstone, um, you know, all that stuff. Uh, so liberal arts with a degree in leadership. Um, and then right after that, went straight into a master's in InfoSec program just to just to have that master's degree for the street cred. Um, that's my full origin story. That's how I got into all of this. Um, you know, flash forward to today, I've been a CISO five times now, fractional CISO, a handful more, um, doing this, uh, loving this, and uh, continuing to chug in this field. Uh, so, Heather, that's my origin story in complete detail. Hopefully that wasn't too long and rambly a story. Hopefully people uh, cared to listen to that. Um, and to that end, the last question, Maya uh, Ferreira, also over at uh, Nearshore Cyber. Uh, she's a research analyst there. And uh, Larry Rosen, uh, VCSO at Presidio again. Uh, they suggested for this show that I mock interview myself and possibly get into an argument with myself. Obviously, everybody was being a bit tongue-in-cheek and being silly, but you know what? There's actually two topics that I still do get conflicted about and do argue with myself, so I thought I'd bring them up. Um, I had Adrian Sanabria on the show, and we talked about sort of uh, tired tropes and, and mis, mis, misperceptions in cybersecurity and myths and misconceptions and all these kinds of things. And one of the ones we talked about was that uh, that trope, the old, uh, it's not a matter of if, but when we get breached, right? Um, and Adrian resoundingly said that that one's BS. Like, let's get off that train. That's that's not a healthy perspective. It's not useful to us. Um, but I can't help but feel there's still some truth to it. Uh, I agree with Adrian. It's it's not um, it's not a driving philosophy that I want in my head as I'm going about my cybersecurity business. But there is some inevitability there. I think there's plenty of businesses that will survive all the way to their natural end without ever having experienced a cybersecurity breach. I think that's entirely possible. So we can't say it's if, but not a matter of if, but when for everybody, right? There's there's going to be some companies that emerge unscathed from a cybersecurity breach or ransomware incident or whatever major you know cyber bombs may hit them. Um, but there does feel like there is a certain amount of inevitability, given how many attackers are out there, given how organized they are, given how well they communicate, given the fact that technology is constantly iterating. And with each iteration, new attack surface is generated and has to be addressed and dealt with and isn't always generated or dealt with on the spot, right? Um, I think there is a certain amount of inevitability there. So I, I really waffle on this one. I vacillate on this one. I, I, I hate the phrase, it's not a matter of if, but when. Um but I do feel like there's some truth in it. So that's, that's, that's me arguing with myself. The second topic would be you only have to be more secure than the other guy. It's a very similar trope. Um, you know, you don't have to be hyper secure 100%. You know, you're never going to be hyper secure 100%. The bad guys, if they're persistent enough, and if it's a nation state ATP, et cetera, et cetera, they, they will always find a way through because you'll never be at 100%. Okay, this is a very strong hypothetical model that, that I think is valid. If, 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 if the best of the best of the pros on the bad guy's side of the fence are truly after you, um, I, I think that that means you're going to get popped at some point, right? You, you probably will if the best of the best are against you get compromised. Some, some chink in the armor will exist and they'll find a way through. Okay, fine. Um, then you would say anything shy of the best of the best I can potentially defeat, right? Um, and this is where we get into this argument of you only have to be more secure than the other guy. If I've hardened myself to a 90% degree and the more casual bad guys make a brief pass at me and see how hardened I am, they're going to move on. 
they're going to find a more tempting target and they're going to move on to the guy that's only hardened at 10 percent or the gal who's at 30 or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, I think that's a fair assessment. I think that a good number of them have off-the-shelf tools. I think just like any other organization, there's junior folks that are running automated scripts. There's senior folks that do more actual thinking and specific nuance. It's, you know, the same thing as running a Vuln scan versus a, a pen test, right? And and they start with a Vuln scan, just like we do. And if nothing comes up at all on me, but a bunch of stuff comes up on the guy down the hall, eh, the odds are they're going for the guy down the hall. Um, but what a horrible, horrible analogy, right? It's it's the old joke about uh, the two guys in the woods and the bear is approaching, and one of them stops to put on his sneakers, and the guy says, why, you'll never outrun that bear. And, and the guy says, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. Um, this is that mindset. This is this is the leaving your buddy to get eaten by a bear mindset, and that's the reason I don't like this one. Um, and maybe it's not necessarily true because if they're persistent enough about you, if you are truly the target they want, everything we just talked about with 90%, 30%, 10% goes out the window. They're going to hammer on you even if they, they see nothing on the initial Vuln scan. They'll start looking for zero days. They'll start fishing. They'll start doing some other way to break into your systems uh, and, and get what they want to get. Um, so, so that's the other reason I think this one's not true. So it's, 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 it's a lousy sentiment from a community perspective, and it's an untruthful one, I think, from the perspective of how valuable a target are you. Uh, but otherwise, I think it has a lot of truth to it. So so there's me arguing with myself on two cyber topics. Folks, thank you so much for listening. Uh, thank you for hearing me out and entertaining me. I, I truly hope my, my blatherings about my background are somehow meaningful. Y'all be good now.